If you would, would you turn in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 1, just to get us started this morning. Beginning in verse 1 of chapter 1, it says, God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and in many ways, in these last days he has spoken to us in his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world. And he is the radiance of his glory, the exact representation of his nature, and upholds all things by the word of his power. And when he had made purification of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much better than the angels as he has inherited a more excellent name than they. Let's pray. Father, as we turn to your word today, we pray that you'd open up our hearts. Lord, that we would quiet them from all the hubbub of the last week or the turmoil of the week to come, and that we just might focus on what's being said from your word today, that our hearts would be open to receive that which the Holy Spirit has prepared for us today, that we wouldn't miss it. And it'll be different for each one. But Lord, I pray that your word would burrow into our hearts and that we would see uh, a result of that today, this morning, from the preaching of your word, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, um, the reason I, I pulled to this chapter here is because it's important that we understand that God doesn't use dreams and visions and so forth and so on to speak to us today, but he has spoken to us through his word, um, and it says through his son, and Jesus is the word. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, etc. So we have his word. This is such a marvelous blessing that we have, and it's complete. We don't need to add to it at all. At all. And so I want you to turn all the way back to Genesis, and I'm going to be in Genesis chapter 10 eventually. But first, I just want to give a quick overview because I'm returning to Foundations. It's a series that we started last year, actually. And I just want to give a short review of it and help you to understand it's so important, and it's really not that complex if you. Stop to think about it. My desire was to teach through Genesis chapter 1 all the way up to chapter 11 and use that as a basis because it really is for the rest of the scripture. If you understand Genesis 1 through 11 and you believe it, you're, you're good. You're good to go. The rest of the Bible just falls into place and fits around that. The problem is with our nation and the West, in a more expanded way, has really turned away from God and gone to evolution, which totally takes out Genesis 1 through 11. Or if they leave Genesis 1 through 11 in there, they give all their interpretations of Genesis 1 11, which is not uh, really the best uh, type of interpretations because they've left God out. So, in Genesis 1 through 11, we need to understand that we need to interpret that those passages that we have in Genesis 1 through 11 in 
a literal way. It's a historical narrative. Now, many men and even some evangelicals would say it's just using figurative language. Or some not so conservative would say it's just mythology, trying to teach us some principles. Um, And I just need to tell you right at the outset, Genesis 1 through 11 is not pre-scientific attempt to explain origins. It's God's word. God wants us to understand what took place at the beginning. There's no other way to understand what took place at the beginning but for God to explain it to us because he was present and no one else was. So Genesis 1 through 11 should be interpreted as a historical narrative. It should be read in the plain sense as it is written. Now, I had the privilege of working with very primitive people, and we brought the gospel to those people. lived out in the middle of a jungle in, in Indonesia, and you know, they would have to stretch really far to get to the interpretations many scientific and highly educated PhD people get to when they read Genesis chapter 1. They read it in the plain sense as it's written, and they don't have any issue with it at all. Oh, God created the heavens and the earth, and he did it in six days. They don't question it. And that's why I say it should be read as historical narrative and just in the the plain reading, the plain sense as you read it. Secondly, applying a historical, grammatical, and literal interpretation means that in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Take it at face value. That's what it's saying. If you don't agree with it, that's between you and God. God has clearly stated what he's done. And he did so in six literal 24-hour days. And when I went through these sections, I'm giving you a review now, I I preached a couple Sundays on how that is a easily proven fact that it was six literal 24-hour days. And on the seventh day, he rested. Adam and Eve were historic and literal persons. They weren't uh, prototypes of something or, or some, uh, some illustration to get a, a, a bigger point across. They were actual human beings that God created, the first human beings. And we will meet them someday in heaven. Thirdly, sin and death came into the world through Adam. It's very, very plain. The account of the fall of man in Genesis chapter Chapter 3 is literal. Take it at face value. And the first couple's rebellion and disobedience was against their creator's one command. Very clear command. And that's what ushered sin and death into the world. You read about that in Romans chapter 5, verse 12, where it says, By one man sin entered in the world, and death by sin. For all have sinned. So every time you go past a cemetery, you can just see that's God's stamp of approval saying, what I said is true. There it is, proof in the pudding. So God introduced the hope of redemption even as he promised a sin deliverer to Adam and Eve in Genesis 3.15. Right at the fall and during that whole circumstance where he's delivering 
uh, pronouncements against the couple for what they had done. He promises that there will be a deliverer to come that will take care of the sin problem. Fourthly, sin was passed down from parents to their children. And so all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. The story of Cain and Abel in Genesis 4 shows how sin spread. Cain's murder of his brother Abel is ample proof of God's word. Just as through one man, sin entered into the world and death through sin. And so death spread to all men because all have sinned. One term for this is original sin. Nobody is not guilty. That's a double negative. It means everybody's guilty, okay, just to help you. Nobody is not guilty. Everybody, all have sinned. And, and that's the problem. That's the human condition. Um, I'm, I'm just enthralled with a book right now. I might have mentioned it already, Secondhand Time. Oh, it talks about the transition from communism in the 90s uh, in Russia to capitalism or a form of capitalism and how it, it was a complete change for the people of Russia and what took place. And it's all personal accounts and testimonies of Soviet communists that were completely befuddled by what took place. Everything they lived for, everything they died for was now persona non grata. And I, I just think... The human condition, it just rips at your heart. It's like, it's like listening to a cello when I read it. it. It just pulls at your heart. And, of course, these were our enemies, right? <laughs> As Americans, they were against us. We were against them. But they're also human beings. And what happened to them and how they were deceived for 70 years by communism. All I can say is that sin really did spread. Genesis 5 then lists the descendants of Adam, and at the end of each person's genealogy, there's a little phrase there, and he died, and he died, and he died. If God had a megaphone, there it is. Ten times it's mentioned at the end of a genealogy, and he died. He begat so-and-so, and so-and-so, and so-and-so. He reached this age, and then he died. So death passed to all men. Fifthly, sin spread to such a degree that the Lord God was sorry that he had actually made man on earth and he was grieved in his heart. He saw that, that the wickedness of man became so great on the earth so that every intent of the thoughts of his heart were only evil continually. That is a pretty dire situation. Due to the pervasiveness of man's wickedness, God chose to blot out man from the face of the earth together with everything that had breath. That was his solution to the situation. However, one man found grace in the eyes of God, Noah, and his three sons and their wives. So there are eight persons in all that were delivered from the great flood that he sent upon the earth. Noah and his family. Now, post-flood, God was pleased to use Noah as a progenitor of humanity going forward. Now, it is true that we all derive from Adam and Eve. They're our first parents. But after the flood, 
there were only eight souls. And so Noah became the new progenitor. Genesis 9.1 says it perfectly. If you want to look at Genesis 9.1, we're going to be in Genesis 10. And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. You might want to circle that little fill and fill the earth because we're going into chapter 10 and 11. We're going to talk about a table and a tower. And this was God's command to Noah and his three sons Be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth. Now, the latter part of Genesis 9 talks of a terrible situation where Noah became drunk, and he laid uncovered in his tent. And we find out that his son Ham looked on his nakedness. I don't understand what all this means, okay? I just know it's bad. Whatever it was, it's bad, because he blessed Shem and Japheth, Noah did, but Ham, he laid a curse on him, and it was serious. And it's very interesting, the curse was that Ham and his descendants, Canaan, would also be in perpetual servitude to Shem and Japheth. You find that in verses 22 and verse 25 of chapter 9. And because he looked on Noah's nakedness when Noah became drunk and laid uncover in his tent. Now, this background gave theological basis for Israel and their conquest of the land of Canaan. Listen to me. Let's, let, let's, let's draw back here. What are the first five books in the Bible? The Pentateuch, right? Who, who was the author? Moses. When was it written? After the Egyptian captivity of 450 years, what he is doing in Genesis and the other four books, he's giving the history and the rationale for their existence as a nation. Because they had lost a lot of it in 450 years of being in captivity to the Egyptians. And so one of the things he's doing here in chapter 9 with this curse of Ham is he's showing the Israelites, listen, it's not going to be long before we try to go into the promised land, promised to Abraham, and you're going to find that there's warfare in the land of Canaan. And this is the rationale for it. This is a theological basis for it. He's prepping them. This is so interesting to me. So the background gave theological basis for Israel for their conquest of the land of Canaan, a foe that they would soon confront as they entered the promised land. Now, in chapter 10, the very first verse, it says, Now these are the records of the generations of Shem, Ham, and Japheth, the sons of Noah, and the sons that were born to them after the flood. So my short overview of the ground that we've covered brings us right up to date, Genesis chapter 10. We already have heard what took place beforehand, and now we're ready to embark on Genesis chapter 10 and what has given, been given the name the Table of Nations, the Table of Nations. Now, there have been many that have studied chapter 10. A lot of linguistic work has gone into the, the names that are written here and how they relate to other countries that are still in existence, some that have been gone out of existence. But most scholars would agree that this is a, a very accurate 
assessment of the nations that were present at the time of the Tower of Babel. But as always, there's more to the story as we dig into the text. Let me just remind you once again about God's blessing on Noah and his three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And he's very clear, he used very clear language. He told them to be fruitful and multiply and to fill the earth. That was God's blessing upon Noah and his three sons. Yet, yet, men did just the opposite, and instead they moved east to the plains of Shinar, led by Nimrod, and purposed in their hearts to build for themselves a city and a tower whose top would reach to heaven. And Nimrod said, let us make for ourselves a name, otherwise we'll be scattered abroad over the face of the whole earth. Do you think they were rebelling? They knew that if they did not do this, they would be scattered, otherwise known as fill the earth. Be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth. No, thank you. I've had enough of traveling. We're going to settle down in a city. And Nimrod led that whole group of people to do such a thing. And so the tables of nations in Genesis 10 actually explains what took place after God destroyed the Tower of Babel. You understand what I'm saying? Okay? It, it really should have chapter 11 first because it tells us what happened, and then chapter 10 actually tells us the results of the Tower of Babel. If you, if you want to take just a second, you can go into chapter 10, and you see in verse 2 it says, the sons of Japheth. Well, at the end of verse 5, you can draw a line across that, because that's the first section and talks about Japheth and some of his, uh, his descendants. And then verse 6 says the sons of Ham. And the sons of Ham and all the discussion that proceeds from that goes all the way to verse 20. That's a lot of press for the guy that got cursed. And I'll give you a rationale for that in a moment. And then you take verse 21. It says, and to Shem. And that kind of finishes it off. And those are the three sons. And, and something else I might mention to you just by way of keeping this all together because uh, I'm not going to read through chapter 10. I'd stumble over the names. You'll stumble over the names. It's crazy. But suffice it to say, it covers the three sons. I just gave you those sections. And at the end of each of the genealogy, look at, at the end of verse 5. It says, everyone according to his language, according to their families, into their nations. And then at the end of verse 20, it says, according to their languages, by their lands, and by their nations. So you see that something has taken place here because it's really funny. Verse 1 of chapter 11 says, now the whole earth used the same language and the same words. So that's why I say um, chapter 10 really comes after chapter 11. But in the scriptures, we have it as before. Now, why do we read in Genesis 11:2 that humanity gathered themselves together and moved east to the plains of Shinar and settled there? Well, this was in direct opposition to God's command and his blessing to Shem, Ham, and Japheth. 
And as we check the background in Genesis, we see that the individual who led that movement was one called Nimrod. So I want to talk to you a little bit about Nimrod. Today's sermon is a bit informational, but it's good to understand what's behind these truths. So you have the three sons of Noah. And then in chapter 10, it talks about various offspring from these sons and then offspring from their offspring, so grandchildren and great-grandchildren. And some are not even names. Some are the names of people. Some are the names of places. And so there's something going on here that is Moses is trying to feed in to the Israelites' mind what they needed to know as they continued on as a nation coming out of slavery. So the first instance, we have the sons of Japheth. The descendants of Japheth list seven sons named Gomer, Magog, Madai, Javan, Tubal, and Meshech, and Tyrus. They're generally associated with those people that peopled Indo-European peoples. And this is done not only through name recognition, but also through the study of linguistics. Okay? We come to this conclusion by seeing various references in Scripture and early secular history and writings discovered on excavated archaeological monuments. Jepheth is credited as being the legendary father of the Greeks. Of the Greeks. And an ancestor to the Aryans of India. Remember I said Indo-European. And one branch of the descendants of Gomer, one of the grandsons here, eventually moved westward with the name probably being preserved both in Germany and Wales. And one of Gomer's sons is named Ashkenaz. Ashkenaz. Now, do you remember a few years ago when we were in the Iraq war, there were Jews. And they were, they were the Ashkenazi Ashkenazi Jews. That goes all the way back to here, folks. This stuff is so pertinent, and we blow right over it, right? We blow right past it. Now, Magog, another of Japheth's sons, and whose name can mean the place of Gog, that's related to an area of Georgia, a region near the Black Sea. And Magog is often mentioned with Meshech and Tubal, and in Ezekiel 38.2, they are associated with Rosh. Now that name is a name from which we derive the modern name of Russia. Okay? So Rosh. And then you have Madai. It's, it's a, cited as an ancient ancestor of the Medes who settled in Persia. And some are traced all the way through their migration into India, and they became the progenitors of the people of India. Now we're still on those descendants of Japheth, the Indo-Europeans. So there's, there, there's so much more that can be said, but we'll save that for another time. Suffice it to say that Japheth's descendants play a heavy role in populating the Indo-European regions. Everyone, according to his language, according to their families, and into their nations. Let's repeat it after each set of genealogies. Now in 10.6, you see the sons of Ham. And their descendants are typically linked to 
Arabia, Africa, and the Tigris-Euphrates region of ancient Babylon, or what we would refer to today as Turkey. Okay? In fact, the Tower of Babel is identified to be very, very close to Baghdad. That's where they think it is, or was. Now remember that Ham received a curse from Noah rather than a blessing. And the curse was that he would be in perpetual servitude to Shem and Japheth. Now, one of Ham's sons, Cush, is related to Ethiopia and cited as such in the Bible. Mizraim is related to Egypt. And these are the sons of Ham we're talking about here now, which is called the land of Ham. And in Psalm 105, it says as much. And Put is the same as Libya, North Africa, west of Egypt. Josephus, who is a first century historian, secular, not a Christian, affirms these things in the first century. He's saying these very same names were related to these same areas. And Canaan, of course, is the ancestor of the Canaanites, which were the enemies of Israel. Now, Nimrod, one of the sons of Cush, and the most famous, will be discussed momentarily in more depth. He settled in the area of the Tigris-Euphrates region and is credited with establishing cities. It's the first time we're hearing about cities here. And especially Babel, which later becomes Babylon. About 1,500, 1,600 years after Babel, the Tower of Babel, Babel becomes Babylon. Remarkably, etymologists now trace two of Ham's descendants to Cathay, which we refer to now as China. Nimrod, in chapter 10, verses 8 through 12, whose name actually means rebel, was called a mighty hunter before the Lord. He is a powerful leader, founded the kingdom of Babylon, and built the great city of Nineveh and both of which were enemies of God's people throughout the ages. So we're in the lineage of Ham now, the one that was cursed. And it turns out that most of these people are enemies of Israel to date, to date, okay? In 1021, it goes into the sons of Shem. After a long discussion of many of the people that came from Ham, we go to Shem. This son of Noah is identified as the father of all the children of Eber. Very important word. It's from the name Eber that we derive the term Hebrews. The Hebrews. Abram was identified as a Hebrew, which would have meant he was from the descendants of Eber. Shame's descendants are the Semitic peoples north of the Persian Gulf. They're children of Eber, and it refers to Hebrews, descendants of Shem in 1021. It, it would be through the line of Shem and Eber that the promised Redeemer would come. And you can back that up by looking at Luke 3, 35 through 36. God's arm is not shortened, and he's not as though he's discovering these things as life goes on. As some in the openness theology Heresy would believe that God reacts to things that are happening. No, I'm sorry. God had the end planned from the beginning. And he, through his providential 
outworking and history is taking care of everything. That should cause us great peace. That is, if we have peace with God through Jesus Christ. Because we're basically living a song that's been sung. We're living a story that's been told. And, and, and we just need to be faithful to do what God wants us to do today and then tomorrow and then the next day. And sometimes we get so caught up in things and we think, oh, no, oh, my, oh. And I just want you to try and picture God in heaven biting his nails. Like, oh, my gosh, what are they doing now? As if, right? It's, it, you can't even picture that in your mind. And that should bring much peace, and it, it's meant to bring peace to us. So in, in summary, the takeaway from these things that I've shared is, is really quite simple. All the families and nations on the earth share a common ancestry. We're all brothers and sisters. Now, I'm looking out here, and I thank God that we're somewhat diverse. Okay? I say somewhat. And, you know, I look at my elder board, and I'm the only white guy on it. I'm kind of chocolate, but I thank God for that. But you know what? It don't matter. Ethnicities are nothing. There is one race, only one human race. The whole idea of races is a social construct that really came out of the idea of evolution. It's not even real, people. There are ethnicities, granted. And we'll be getting into that uh, a little bit maybe next week as we talk about the nations that have derived from the Tower of Babel and so forth. But I just want you to understand that we all come from Adam and more specifically descend from one of Noah's three sons. And there are at least two biblical reasons for me to say this. Number one, the first is Genesis 10.5, 20, and 31 where the same wording is used. Everyone, according to his language, according to their families, and into their nations. doesn't say anything about race. And it doesn't even say anything about color of skin. Okay? The second reason is found in Acts 17.26, which you should turn to and you should underline if you don't have it underlined in your Bible already. Acts 17, verse 26 says, And he, God, made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth. That should settle it. But it doesn't. It doesn't. Goes on to say, having determined their appointed times and the boundaries of their habitation. Are you kidding me? Does he have it sewed up or what? Nations come, nations go. God has it all under control. Now, there are many implications from these truths. The fact that we're one human race is amazing. Another implication that I'll look to later is God's plan for the nations of the world. From this point where God identified the origin of the multitudes of nations on the earth at the time, in Genesis chapter 10, to God's covenant that we would be reading about if we went further into chapter 12, God's covenant with Abraham, in that all the nations of the earth would be blessed through Abraham, Genesis 18, 18, 
and 22.18, it says exactly that. And then to Jesus' command to preach the gospel and make disciples of all nations, all the way to the last book of the Bible, Revelation, where we see even in the eternal state, even in the eternal state, there will continue to be nations, ethnos. You see that in Revelation 21-24. So God cares about nations and has a plan for the nations. And find out where you are. What nation are you in? Recognize that God has a plan for this nation. Don't know what it is. It's been great for the last couple hundred years. Don't know how long it's going to go. But as long as it goes, we go with it. If it changes, we just tighten our belts and do whatever we need to do to keep following God in the process. Folks, I know that the elections of 2024 are the most important elections in the history of mankind. We're just one nation. Just one nation. A nation that's turned its back on God in spades. So, you know, I pray that he gives us respite. I really do. But we have sinned grievously against God as a nation. And the righteous do suffer with the unrighteous when his judgment comes. So, now I want to talk about Nimrod. Nimrod and Nebuchadnezzar. Because Nimrod was with Babel. Nebuchadnezzar was with Babylonia, right? So Babel is a first post-flood attempt at world domination. Think about that for a second. It's the first term, first time that the term kingdom is used in this connection with Nimrod. If you look at back at Genesis chapter 10 and verse 8. It says, now Cush became the father of Nimrod. He became mighty one on the earth. And he was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Therefore it is said, like Nimrod, a mighty hunter before the Lord. The beginning of his kingdom was Babel. The beginning of his kingdom was Babel. It's the first time that that word kingdom is used in the Bible. And it wasn't God's kingdom that we're talking about here. It was Nimrod's kingdom that's being spoken of. A kingdom that was in defiance of God's command to multiply and spread throughout the earth. Nimrod led the people of the plains, or of the people that would follow him, to the plains of Shinar, and he settled there in direct opposition to God's command. Now the cities, I told you that Nimrod was a city builder, right? It wasn't just that he built Babel. He built a bunch of cities. He built the city of Babel, Erek, Akkad, Kalna, and then he also built Nineveh, Rehoboth-ur, and Kala, and Rezin. And the idea is, is that he established these cities as a conglomerate. When I read Babel, I don't read just you know, one little grouping of people, Babel. I read that conglomerate or network of cities, which was Nimrod's kingdom. An amazing man. He was mighty. Says it three times of him. He was mighty. And he established this network of cities. Now Nimrod's name translates from the Hebrew as let us rebel or rebel. And some surmise that Nimrod's rebellion stems from the curse that Noah set on his ancestor Ham. 
a servant of servants he will be to his brothers. And that would be to Japheth and Shem. And quite possibly Nimrod purposed in his heart to never be servile to anyone, not his brothers and certainly not to God. And he proves it by his actions in his life. Nimrod was a mighty hunter before the Lord. I mentioned that adjective mighty is used three times in two verses. In 1 Chronicles 1.10, it repeats this designation of Nimrod, and it leads us to believe that Nimrod became the first man post-flood that desired to dominate the world as his deeds only proved. He was not a godly man. And <laughs> he's in a long line of men, right? It's kind of the beginning of a long line of men that want to dominate the world. There's something lost in the description that we have in Genesis 10.9. Nimrod was a mighty hunter before the Lord. That sounds innocuous. It sounds like, he likes hunting. Now some would go further and say, yeah, but at that time, those dinosaurs that Noah had on the ark, they're getting pretty big now. It's like 700 years after the flood, and, and these dinosaurs are big, and Nimrod was able to slay dinosaurs, so he's a dragon killer. Okay, maybe. The Jerusalem Targum, which was an Aramaic commentary on the Torah, the first five books, okay? This is their, their understanding of Nimrod. He was powerful in hunting and in wickedness before the Lord, for he was a hunter of the sons of men. And he said to them, Depart from the judgment of the Lord and adhere to the judgment of Nimrod. Therefore it is said, as Nimrod, the strong one, strong in hunting and in wickedness before the Lord. Now that's their interpretation of Genesis chapter 10 and who Nimrod was and what preceded his life. The empire of Babylon, which evolved from the city of Babel, was an affront both to God and man. Why? Because it tried to do without God, and it was an affront to man, because Nimrod and later Nebuchadnezzar, they wanted and attempted to rule over the peoples of the earth. This is serious stuff, folks. Nebuchadnezzar, Nimrod's successor. Remember, Nimrod was at the beginning of his kingdom. 15 to 1600 years later, you've got Babylon with Nebuchadnezzar and provides an even more in-depth biblical illustration of what Nimrod Nimrod began with Babel. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar is a marvelous story. It's, It's in Daniel, one of my favorite books. An intro to the tyrant Nebuchadnezzar is seen in Daniel chapter 1, verse 2. It says this, And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, along with some of the vessels of the house of God, and he brought them to the land of Shinar, sounds familiar, right? Into the house of his gods, Nebuchadnezzar's gods, and he brought the vessels into the treasury of his God. So the tyrant, Nebuchadnezzar, was making a bold claim here, having sacked Jerusalem and destroying the temple in Jerusalem, and carrying away all the people, he also took the sacred things out of God's house and put them in the house of his God, which was his way of saying, so much for Yahweh, I conquered him. Yahweh's nothing 
to Nebuchadnezzar, I've defeated him. Now, the tyrant's dream in chapter 2 of Daniel, Nebuchadnezzar's sleeping, he has this dream. Doesn't say what it is, but he wakes up and he's really freaked out. He's just very anxious. And he calls all of his soothsayers and, and all the magicians and everything in his court, and he gets them all together. And you know what he says to them? Tell me my dream. And they're like, no, you first. <laughs> you tell us what you dreamt, and we'll tell you the meaning of it. He said, oh, you're just trying to buy time. You really are not worthy of being called magicians and soothsayers and so forth. You tell me what it means. And they're like, dude, nobody on earth has ever asked this of magicians and sorcerers. Ever. You're crazy. Well, he was a tyrant, right? And so he just said, if I'm crazy, then off with your heads. And that's what he was going to do. But there's this guy called Daniel. And Daniel was taken to uh, Babylon in the first foray that the Babylonians took people from Jerusalem. And Daniel had a name for himself. And so some went to Daniel and said, this is what the king's doing here, King Nebuchadnezzar, and it's really dire here. He's going to kill everyone. And incidentally, Daniel, you're kind of in that group of, you know, soothsayers and sorcerers and magicians because you can interpret dreams. And so Daniel asked for a little bit of time, and then if you look at Daniel chapter 2, Daniel chapter 2, verses 20, and I'll just read to 23. It says this. So Daniel asked for a little bit of time, and then the mystery, in verse 19, says, then the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a night vision. Then Daniel blessed the God of heaven. Okay, so the king has not explained what he had dreamt about. In fact, I think he completely forgot it, but he was just very, very alarmed by it. And Daniel is going to interpret this dream, and he prayed to Yahweh to help him. And in verse 20, it says, Daniel said, Let the name of God be blessed forever and ever, for wisdom and power belong to him. It is he who changes the times and the epochs. He removes kings and establishes kings. He gives wisdom to wise men and knowledge to men of understanding. It is he who reveals the profound and hidden things. He knows what is in the darkness, and the light dwells with him. To you, O God of my fathers, I give thanks and praise, for you have given me wisdom and power. Even now you have made known to me what we requested of you, for you have made known to us the king's matter or the king's dream. So Daniel has everything in the right place. He worships the God of heaven, and he prayed to the God of heaven to reveal what the king had dreamt, and God revealed it to him. And Daniel described the tyrant's dream and how it was of a great statue that had a head of gold, which represented, incidentally, the tyrant's kingdom. It represented the kingdom of Babylonia. But Daniel went on to explain that the kingdom of Babylon would be replaced by another kingdom represented by arms and chest of silver, but even that kingdom would be replaced by another 
kingdom signified by its belly and thighs, which would be bronze. And then that kingdom's going to be replaced by another with legs that were of iron. And its feet were made partly of iron and partly of clay. And he explains all this to King Nebuchadnezzar. So what was King Nebuchadnezzar's response to this fantastic revelation of what his dream was? Head of gold. Awesome. Awesome. I'm king of kings. This is awesome. And so somehow the tyrant seemingly missed everything after the head of gold representing his kingdom. He went on to order a massive statue be made of gold and set up on the plain of Shur, and that all the kingdoms, all the people in the kingdom were to worship the statue, and anyone who refused would be thrown into a furnace blazing with fire, which gets to three friends that we know about. I'm not going there today. And the tyrant, Nebuchadnezzar, obviously saw himself alone was to be worshipped. He's the head of gold. He made the whole statue gold. Skip all those other kingdoms. What's that talking about? Totally blew right past all the other kingdoms that Daniel mentioned. And his statue, all of gold, shows him usurping God's plan and establishing himself as the only worthy potentate. Just like Nimrod tried to do with Babel. Exactly the same. Now, it's ever the same, isn't it? With each megalomaniac that deems themselves ruler of the world, of which there is a long list, including Alexander the Great, right? You've got Julius Caesar and, and Napoleon and Hitler and Stalin, Hirohito, his whole nation only served the war machine. That's why we bombed Japan. They were... They were You could not reason with them. The emperor wanted to take over the world. All children stopped going to school. All women got out of the homes. All men were either in the army or the factories. And it was a war machine because he had designs to take over the entire world. And Mao Zedong. Now, all follow the same line set by Nimrod gather people together under their leadership and inspire them with a vision of greatness. At Babel, Nimrod crowed, come, let us build a a city for ourselves and a tower whose top will reach to heaven and we'll make a name for ourselves. We'll settle here. Nebuchadnezzar, a year or so after he built his golden statue, made everybody bow down and worship at it. Of course, you know, Uh, Meshach, Abednego, and Daniel. None of those guys worshiped there, but God took care of them. And he made everybody worship there. And he was walking around on the roof of his palace looking at Babylon, which was a marvelous city. I mean, the descriptions of Babylon were were phenomenal. It had hanging gardens, and, and the gardens had water coming down so it would cool, kind of like our little spray things that we have in the summer months. And, and it was cool. These are the gardens, the hanging gardens of Babylon. And they had libraries and they had dentists and they had doctors. Quite a civilization, actually. So he's strutting around on his roof. And as he surveyed the magnificent city, his true heart came out and it was exposed. And he judged himself as responsible for all of it. And he said this, Is this not Babylon, the great 
which I myself have built as a royal residence, and by the might of my power, and for the glory of my majesty. Now, you don't get much more hubris than that. He is taking all credit for everything that is wonderful and glorious in Babylon. The amazing pride of this man casting himself as the supreme architect and builder of the empire. When Daniel told him at the very beginning when he interpreted his dream, this is what Daniel told Nebuchadnezzar when he first interpreted that dream that made him so crazy. You, O king, are the king of kings to whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom. There's that providence of God. There's his sovereign reign again. And the power and the strength and the glory, he has given them into your hand and has caused you to rule over them all. You are the head of gold. And Nebuchadnezzar's mind shut down right after that. (laughs) Yeah! He never heard anything else. This is amazing. God's response to the pride of the human heart. God opposes the proud but he gives grace to the humble because of the tyrant and he pulled all the glory to himself. This is what God said to Nebuchadnezzar. Your royal authority has been taken from you because I'm the one that gave it to you and you will be driven away from people and you will live with the wild animals and you will eat grass like cattle for seven years. That actually took place. Right at that time, he lost his mind. He went out into the fields, and for seven years, he acted like an animal in the fields. And it came to pass exactly as God said it would. In the end, after that seven years, the tyrant humbled himself before God, and this is what he said at that time. At the end of that period, I raised my eyes toward heaven. This is his personal testimony. And my reason returned to me. I was able to think again. I wasn't like an animal any longer. And I raised my eyes towards heaven. My reason returned to me. And I blessed the Most High and raised and praised him and honored him who lives forever. Ah, he's finally on the right page. And again, he said, Now I praise, exalt, and honor the King of heaven for all his works are true and his ways are just. And words that everyone should take to heart and be afraid. He says this, he is able to humble those who walk in pride. Beloved, pride affects every single one of us. And this is something that we need to to take to heart. He, God, is able to humble those who walk in pride. If he humbled Nebuchadnezzar, you think he can humble an individual? Of course he is. You know, it's interesting. God reigns supreme over all. Some, some may seem to be rulers of the world for a time, but in the end, their empires just crumble. I was looking up Nimrod in the, the um, Zondervan Pictorial Encyclopedia of the Bible, and uh, you got a little article on Nimrod over here. Not a very big article, actually. And on the facing page, there is a whole page, and it's just this... These, these mounds of dirt. <laughs> and I just had to laugh because underneath it, it said, it said, this is the ruins of one of Nimrod's cities, Kala. 
And I thought, there you go. <laughs> where, where, where are all these leaders of the world? Where is Babylon? Where is Greece? Where is Rome? And all the men who were at their head, where are they? And this is the truth that needs to strengthen us even today as, as we listen to saber rattling going on. Because there's a lot of that going on, right? We've got the fellow in China. We've got the fellow in North Korea. I mean, they're all over. The fellow in, in Rosh. They're all, you know, they're, they want to be rulers of the world. He's able to humble those who walk in pride. Now, I want to bring it down to the individual because I know I started with the table of nations and everything, but I kind of focused then on Nimrod, and then I went over to Nebuchadnezzar because they're very much the same. But the truth of the matter is, all of us are human beings. We all come from the same stuff. We're all sinners. And if it's so with the tyrannical men who would rule the world, how much more individuals who have been overtaken with personal pride? Think about it for a second. Just as Nimrod refused to understand that God's word must stand and that the descendants of Ham would be servants of Shepheth and Shem, and even though he established cities and raised up a tower toward heaven, he did it all against God. And next week we'll talk about what happened to that big tower. And God saw Nimrod's plans were foiled. And just as Nebuchadnezzar's pride was devastated over a seven-year period of God's chastening, there's a message here for each one of us to examine our own hearts. You know, we're breaking into the new year. It's a great year. Just come to grips. Come to grips. Some may still insist on retaining the reign over their own lives just as much as Nimrod's desire to build a city. <laughs> you know, we've forgotten then God's word that says, we are not our own, but we've been bought with a price. And I'm talking to Christians here now too. Pride is not something that we're not afflicted with as Christians. There are some who walk about on the roof of their palaces, so to speak, looking at their life and, and maybe their looks, or their family, or their jobs, or their homes, as though they're, they're responsible for all the blessings that God has bestowed upon them. And if you're caught in that, you can easily forget Paul's word. What do you have that you've not received? What do you have that you've not received? And if you did receive it, then why do you boast as though you did not? I'm talking about heart issues here. And I, I don't know your heart. You know your own hearts. But man, we're proud as people. We are so proud. Life is more than food for the body and, and more than clothing. And since all these things, all this stuff that we see around us are to be burned up and destroyed in intense heat, what sort of people ought we to be in holy conduct and godliness as we look for and hasten the coming day of the Lord. I believe it's really close, really close. Everything's gone so global, people. That's just getting ready for the Antichrist. We're gearing up big time. It's never been like this, never like this in the history of mankind. And everything is linked now. We're all linked up, right? And that's exactly what the Antichrist needs. So... Make sure you're ready and guard your hearts. Enjoy life. 
enjoy the good things that God has given us to freely enjoy, but hold on to them lightly. Because if something were to happen and everything gets taken away, you're going to be okay? You are in Christ. You will be in Christ. And that's when we really need to band together and encourage one another if something like that were to come. It happens. It happened in Russia in 1990 and 1991. They were left with nothing. They didn't know what to do with themselves. Okay? Could happen in America. Now, next week, I'm going to look at the Tower of Babel and the plans of men and nations and how it interacts with Israel at the time that it was written, but how those nations are still around and they're still Israel's enemies. And we're going to talk about the will of God in all of it. So let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for your word and for uh, chapters of genealogies, just names, lists of names, and how they all have meaning, Lord. And God, thank you for uh, men who have studied and scholars who have taken uh, the names and through linguistic studies and through geographical and archaeological studies have come to uh, write books that we can look at and see how pertinent this is all to our living today. We thank you for this, Lord, and we pray that you would bless this time to our hearts now in Jesus' name. Amen.